coming up on this episode? The number one thing for us is passion. And here's how we think about it. If there's a product or service that we get passionate about, and when I say passionate, I'm talking like to the point of we're telling friends and family about it voluntarily because we're just passionate about what that product or service is. When we can find something like that, then the passion that we feel for it just comes out in the advertising in it. It makes the final product just that much more compelling. You're listening to the Pursuit of Purpose podcast. Wisdom, stories, and advice from successful entrepreneurs and inspirational people. Hello, Pursuit of Purpose listeners. I wanted to take a moment and thank all of you for your support and listening to all the episodes so far. As of today, I'm looking at the statistics we just reached 3,000 downloads, and um, on average, our episodes are being listened to or downloaded about 91 times, so um, early on in the game, but uh, it's a benchmark that I'm excited about and uh, grateful to all of you out there listening. On this episode today, uh, one of the more exciting uh, episodes as someone, the owner of a marketing company myself, I get to interview Benton Crane. He's the CEO of Harmon Brothers. Now that name might not ring a bell to you uh, because they um, are just the agency. And I guess I probably shouldn't even say just when you hear the ads that they produce, but they are the agency behind Poopery, Squatty Potty, Chatbooks, uh, ClickFunnels. I mean, if you, any really, really viral, popular ad that you've seen on YouTube or passed around on Facebook, um, there's a pretty good chance that the Harmon brothers had a role in producing that. And if they didn't have a role in producing it, it was probably another agency trying to copy what it is that these guys are doing. They are the experts in what they call branded conversion content. And this episode dives into the background on Benton Crane, uh, background on the Harmon brothers, how they got started. And then towards the end, we talk a little bit about a new book that they just released called From Poop to Gold. And as of recording this podcast, I had not listened to it. But since uh, the recording and now publishing this, I have listened to that book on Audible. And it is entertaining and very, very uh, worth your while. So I would highly encourage anyone out there that is interested in marketing or just um, trying, trying to effectively grow a culture Um positive culture in your office. And as you scale your business, I would definitely recommend checking out from poop to gold. And besides with a name like that, you're, I mean, it's, you're at least a little bit intrigued to know what that's about. So without further ado, I'm going to jump into this episode with Benton Crane. Oh, and by the way, the ads that the Harmon brothers have created, I'm going to include my favorite three to five ads that they have done. So the poopery, squatty potty, chat books, um, and a few others. But if you haven't seen those ads, I would strongly, strongly recommend that you take a second, go to the show notes or uh, the chriskiefer.net website, and I will embed those in the, uh, the site there so you can take a look at these amazing, they're literally, every single time I watch one of these ads, I'm like, oh, maybe I need to get a squatty potty. Oh, I think I might need to get a bed jet now. Uh, maybe I do need a grill. I didn't even know that a woodwind was a thing, but they just do a phenomenal job of conveying the product and then uh, in a very fun way and making you want to buy it. So check out those ads, they are in the show notes. 
Thank you everyone for joining us on another episode of the Pursuit of Purpose. My name is Chris Kiefer, and today I am with Benton Crane, the CEO of Harmon Brothers. Benton, thanks so much for joining us. Hey, thanks for the invite. Happy to be here. So yeah, I guess I'll, I'll uh, let you, Benton, kind of explain um, who you are, what you do, how you got involved with the Harmon Brothers, and um, anything else that you'd like to say about the organization, the Harmon Brothers in general. Sure, sure. Thank you. So historically in the advertising world, there's kind of been these two different camps that rarely mix together. You know, in one camp, you have kind of your traditional branders. And, you know, when we talk about traditional branding, it's what you see all the time with, you know, Coca-Cola, Apple, um, Google, Nike. You know, it's these big brands that although their advertising is focused on, you know, creating this look, this feel, this emotion so that when you or I are in the store and we're, we're about to make a purchasing decision, we subconsciously remember back to those, you know, those feelings and those images that, that we've seen through the branding efforts and, and that helps influence um, our purchase decisions. Now on the opposite camp is kind of this world of infomercials, right? It's this direct response world where it's, it's more like, you know, think of some famous infomercials like the Snuggie and, and Slapchop and, and ShamWow. It's more about like kind of hard pitching you, hard selling you on on this product and then helping you, you know, overcome concerns and resolve doubts and that type of thing. And, and you know, those two camps and those two uh, kind of schools of thought around advertising have kind of not mixed much at all. They've been in many ways kind of polar opposites where one is all about the look, the feel, the emotion, and then the other one is all about like the, the return on investment, right? We, we spend a dollar in advertising and we expect to immediately get, you know, $2 back in, in, in sales. Um, and at Harmon Brothers, we, we kind of challenged those two worlds and said, hey, you can actually take the best of both of those worlds and mix them together into a type of advertising. We call it branded conversion content that allows us to, you know, create the, these brand stories like like you've seen with Squatty Potty and, and Chatbooks and Purple and, and many of the others where we create that that look, that feel, that emotion that you can connect with and that you remember and that you trust. But we also incorporate elements of you know infomercials where we're talking you through a problem and presenting a solution and um, overcoming your concerns and inviting you to make a purchase and it's kind of, um, you know, I, I think in many ways it's kind of swept the, the advertising industry by storm. And it's, it's been kind of how we've gone from, you know, just a tiny little boutique shop, uh, you know, starting with poopery. And then it's just snowballed year after year into, you know, more and more campaigns and bigger campaigns. And, um, and kind of recently, um, you know, we've, started to get a whole lot more spotlight on it than, than we did in our early days. So that, that's, that's kind of a background of who we are and what we do. Awesome. So, um, I want to, and I want to get back to the, uh, I have some questions on kind of the two camps that you were describing, but before we kind of go off in that conversation, I'm interested in knowing a little bit about you personally, 
um, and kind of the entrepreneurial journey that at least from LinkedIn looks like you've um, had a number of interesting, um, uh, what would that be, jobs, professions, careers, uh, pursuits. Sure. Um, and um, yeah, so I'm, I guess I'm curious, where would you say that your entrepreneurial ambition uh, comes from personally? Great question. So I think I've had a bit of an entrepreneurial bug ever since I was, you know, a young kid and, and, you know, kind of through my teenage years. Um, I, I grew up in a neighborhood that was just down the road from the now defunct company WordPerfect. And in the early 90s, WordPerfect was, you know, it was kind of this booming tech business that was... It was all the rage. And so all my neighbors around me were, were kind of part of this you know, tech boom. And there was quite a bit of affluence in my neighborhood. But my family happened to be more kind of a you know, blue collar family where my dad kind of jumped from uh, you know, tough blue collar job to tough blue collar job. And as a general rule, you know, kind of had a hard time, um, you know, he kind of had a hard time uh, providing in a, let's see, <laughs> I want to say it in a, in a way that's not disparaging to my dad, but, you know, he, he struggled in his career to, um, you know, to find career success. And so as a result, um, I kind of grew up, even though I was surrounded by affluence, my family didn't have um, that affluence. And so, whatever I got, I had to go earn myself and I had to work for it. And so, um, my entrepreneurial bug started young, uh, you know, everything from doing paper routes and mowing lawns and, um, washing windows, um, selling roses on Valentine's day. I did a ton of door to door sales as a kid. Um, and, that's awesome. um, and, and that, that's kind of like what laid the foundation for me. Um, Later on in, in high school, I got super, super passionate about fixing cars. I, I just found this, this passion for it. And I, I think by the time I was 18, I had already owned almost a dozen different cars. And they were always, you know, just these junkers that I would, you know, get for free or close to free. And then I would fix them up and have fun with them and drive them and play. And then I would sell them off. And um, I loved it so much that I actually dropped out of high school my junior year and I pursued, I went to the community college and pursued an education in automotive repair. And um, I just ate it up. I was so passionate about it and loved it so much. I ended up competing in automotive repair um, at first the school level and then later the state level. And, and then that's a up, thing you can compete like for prizes. How does that, how does that work? Yeah. It's, um, the, the organization is called, um, VICA. I don't remember what that stands for. It's vocational something or other. They have competitions for all sorts of vocations, you know, everything from automotive repair to, um, I think even like, uh, some cosmetology type stuff, um, but anyways, they have these localized competitions at the, the various colleges, and I happened to win mine. And so they sent me to the state competition, and I won that one too. And so they sent me to Kansas City to compete at the national level. And um, 
I ended up getting second place in the nation and winning um, the, this big prize toolbox full of snap-on tools, which in the mechanics world, that's kind of, um, you know, the, the best of the best. And so it was a, it was a pretty big prize for me. Um, so that, that was, um, those were kind of like my, my high school and early college years were pursuing that. And then after I kind of finished up with that and I started my career in automotive repair, I quickly saw that, uh, I wanted something more. I wanted kind of the next challenge and looking for the next challenge, I decided to go back to school. So I I enrolled at Brigham Young University. I first tried studying engineering, but I flunked out of calculus twice Um, and and found (laughs) that pursuing engineering was going to be a tough road for me because math was so hard for me. Um, But around that same time, I took an economics class that ignited a similar passion in me that, you know, I ha- in the same way I was super passionate in high school about cars, in college I became super passionate about economics. And so I just started consuming um, books about economics and, and I ended up pursuing a degree in, in economics. And, and so coming out of school, that took me to Washington, to Washington, D.C., where I kind of started my second career first as a statistician at the Census Bureau, and then later as um, an intelligence analyst. Um, I, I worked uh, for Deloitte as a, uh, you know, a, 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 a civilian consultant for the, um, for the various intel agencies out there in DC. Um, so that was kind of the beginning of my second career. The status, so your second, you're saying that the second career was kind of into the economics statistics world yeah yeah it was it, it was a world where i got heavily into surveys and data and spreadsheets and and data analytics and um, it was actually that skill set that um, ended up paving the way for me to partner up with uh, with the Harmon brothers um, so the Harmon brothers are actually my cousins. We grew up together, so we've been we've been tied at the hip since we were just little kids. Um, mm-hmm. But they were simultaneous. While I was in Washington D.C., they were um, at a little company called Orabrush, where they kind of pioneered the world of uh, you know video marketing, online video marketing, uh, particularly on YouTube. And um, Mm. I was kind of watching from afar as a fan of what they were doing. And when they started to look for what was next after Ourobrush, the founder of Poopery, Susie Batiz, reached out to Jeff um, and and approached him on doing a a campaign for Poopery. And... So Jeff initially was really skeptical of it. You know, it's like this toilet spray. (laughs) Of course, like everyone else, (laughs) Jeff's kind of looking at this like, what in the world? Who is this crazy lady contacting me? And needless to say, she ended up sending him a bunch of samples. And he took it home and tried it out. And he was like, holy smokes, this stuff really works. And um, and so in a, com- in a phone conversation that I had with him at that time, while he was just kind of thinking about the campaign, um, you know, he expressed, 
you know, there's this product, it sounds crazy, but it really works. And, um, and they want a campaign. So I'm thinking about doing this campaign and, um, and he expressed, you know, but one of the things that I lack is somebody, um, who knows data, um, because every campaign has a lot of data optimization, um, ad buying, um, th there's a fair amount of analytics that go into, into these campaigns. That's kind of in addition to all the creative that goes into them. And, mm. and so of course that was my background, that was my strength. And, and so that's what initiated the conversation and ultimately, um, I decided to join up with Jeff and Neil. And so I moved my family from Washington, D.C. to Utah. Um, by the way, one of the most awkward professional conversations I've ever had was when I pulled my manager at Deloitte into her office and explained that I was submitting my resignation so that I could sell poop spray. <laughs> <laughs> And she's like, um, okay, but seriously, where, wh why are you leaving? Yeah, yeah. It was one of those conversations where, like, she just couldn't even begin to wrap her head around what I was saying to her. And um, <laughs> the thing that's funny to me about, I'm trying to, what year would have this, would the poopery, like, when did you guys start working with them? And then when was the commercial posted? Yeah, this you know? was, this was 2013, August of 2013. Okay, because the thing that I'm trying to remember back on that would have been right at the, uh, it would have been right around the end of. That's when the video was posted. Was 2013? Yes. Yeah. So, because I remember the first time that I saw the poopery video, and it was right as I was graduating college, and um, the I feel like it was right around this time there were all of these um, viral YouTube videos that from my standpoint not knowing anything about the you know the market or the like the strategy behind these and the other one that's coming to mind which i'm sure you guys have seen is the chuck testa taxidermy video oh was that Rhett and Link? That did they do that one yeah yeah mm -hmm. yep, yep and so there's those types of videos and poopery was another one where we saw it was like amazing production value really really like obviously professional but at the same time, super confusing. And, and then obviously as more of these happen, you like as a consumer, and this is my perspective on it, you kind of um, believe more so later in you know the years when you see this like, oh, there's an actual product. But initially it was like, this can't be real. And then you go to their website and you can actually buy it. And it's like, and then all of a sudden there was like a buzz, like people were starting to buy this and it was actually working. But initially I remember seeing it and just being like, this is absolutely hilarious. I'm sharing this. But at the same time, I was like, this has to just be a joke. And then it, there was a number of these other videos and commercials that were coming out that were like intentionally... Um, the Chuck test or retin link, their strategy is more, um, we want to make it look like really, really bad. Um, <laughs> but you know, like in a funny way, whereas the poopery was like very obviously super, super scripted, um, funny and a little bit more intellectual from, in my opinion. Uh -huh. But anyways, I just think that's fascinating to, um, think about what happened as, I mean, basically everything that you guys are doing with kind of mixing the branding and advertising and the infomercials together is only because of the internet that that's possible because, you know, before you had 30 seconds on a TV spot 
and um you there's there's kind of it's hard to get much done with that you know that's right and then you open up the ability for viral sharing and whatnot and it incorporates this whole other component of how do we make this funny because an infomercial back in the day if it was funny that was great but the extent that that goes anywhere is just the four people sitting in the living room watching that's it. Right. And they're like, huh, that was good. That's right. And then, and they never get to see it again. <laughs> yeah, that, that, that's exactly right. You know, another funny thing I remember about those early days, right after I moved my family across the country, you know, quit my job at Deloitte and started working on this poopery campaign. The first people who I showed the video to was my in-laws. And, um, <laughs> <laughs> and you're like, this is my new job and this is why I moved my, the, your daughter over the cross the country. <laughs> that's exactly right. And I kid you not, they watched that whole entire video in utter shock and disgust and did not crack a single smile the whole entire time. And I was watching that happening and I just thought to myself, what have I done with my life? <laughs> right um, <laughs> that's awesome but fortunately they were the exception not the rule um most people actually found mm. it you know very fun and um and unfortunately unfortunately my in-laws found it distasteful but everyone else liked it <laughs> right and it worked yep. so the market decides um that's awesome so uh you that was the first time that you got linked up and that's interesting so basically your stat background was very valuable in optimizing that's something that i hadn't thought about at Harmon brothers so i thought initially you guys produce and do all the creative but when you're working with a company you actually go in and you're doing the um the the distribution of that commercial that you've now created, right? To try and optimize and get their ad dollars to go as far as possible. Yeah, absolutely. And in fact, um, it's oftentimes surprising to people to find out that our creative side of the house is only half of the equation. Um, the right. the distribution side and all of the analytics and optimization and data that go into these projects are actually equally as important as the creative um, because you know, our ability to get success after success and hit after hit is not because our creative team just has these amazing instincts, but it's actually because we're constantly testing and we're following the data so that we're, we're identifying and staying out in front of trends. And then we can apply all of that knowledge as we move on to, you know, each of our subsequent, campaigns um so we put a lot of a lot of time and effort and focus on on the data side of 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 what we do that's awesome so are and that makes a lot of sense to me i'm i have an engineering background and i'm myself i'm an excel geek um i feel like i try and put everything into a spreadsheet like even stuff that clearly should be in like a word document i'm like Okay, I'm gonna you know create this spreadsheet with formulas and everything to um so anyways, I, I like I like that and I do think that um in having success, do you one of the things I'm curious about is when you guys are working with someone, are you building out the landing pages, the um sale platform and everything so that they basically come to you and say, Here's this product 
like help us and then you guys go start to finish or I'm sure maybe there's an option for variability of how much they want you involved? Yeah, so it, it depends on the needs of the client. Uh, many of our clients, it's been kind of a full service package that we've provided where not only are we providing the video creative assets, but we are um, building out the whole entire sales funnel for them as well and going through all of the optimization and ad buying and everything associated with that. Um, and then we have other clients who, you know, maybe they're more mature. Um, uh, it, it, you know, maybe the company is it, not the client, but the company is more mature and, and has kind of some internal teams built out to where they don't need, um, need mm -hmm. as much of our help in those areas. Um, but even in situations like that, we still consult um, their internal teams because, you know, we've been through this so many times and, and made so many different campaigns successful that we have a ton of learnings that, that we can bring to the table and help, help our clients be successful even when their internal teams are, are operating their own funnel. Right, right. Um, so one of the things that I've, um, and I think this is the challenge in, in having a, how do I want to say this? One thing that I think about frequently is how you keep employees uh, fully engaged or to, or another way would to say it would be basically try to make them owners of the company. Mm -hmm. um, are you, so are you a stakeholder in the Harmon Brothers company or are you just the operating CEO and you receive a salary? So I, I am a stakeholder. Um, okay. I, I, I I wasn't always a stakeholder. So in, in the beginning, um, I, you're just another employee. Yeah, I was, a, I mean, I was a profit sharing employee and quite frankly, almost all of our employees are profit sharing employees. Um, so that, mm. um, they have that, um, you know, kind of that shared ownership, so to speak, even though they don't actually, um, own a stake in the company itself, but they do in the profits. Right. Right. And that's the reason I asked that not to get super particular about the inner workings of your business, but more of like the strategy in operating and running a high class, uh, organization is how you, I, I'm very entrepreneurial and trying to create a culture. I mean, there's pros and cons to a true entrepreneur. Um, but if you could try to take out or extrapolate the pros to that of just kind of thinking outside the box putting in the extra time that's necessary to go from good to great, you know, in various components. Um, I, I sometimes, I guess I feel like it's not possible to truly be entrepreneurial if you don't have some sort of profit sharing or, um, you know, if, if you're just coming for the salary, uh, I don't know, you know what I mean? I just feel like it's, it's difficult to create a culture in which people, are working harder for the same pay. You know what I mean? Yeah, I, I, I totally agree. And in fact, early on, one of the principles that we kind of established was that, you know, we take half of all of our profits and share them back to the team. And, and that's very intentional um, because we feel like when we go set up a contract with a client, we're doing everything in our power to align the client and our organization so that we have shared goals and so that we're working towards the same thing. 
And then we want that alignment to extend all the way through our organization and the whole entire team who's working on the project, we want them to be aligned the same way. Um, so that awesome. that way, when, when an all nighter needs to happen to, you know, to push a, a project over the deadline, um, there's no need for a manager to come in and, you know, have to dictate that that needs to be done. It's just everyone steps up to the plate and, and does what it takes to get the, and the execute. Yeah. And, and they make it happen. And then anytime there's a creative disagreement, it gives us a, um, it, you know, a compass, so to speak, by which we can kind of work our way through a creative dis disagreement by always just asking ourselves what is going to what's make, what's going to benefit yeah, everybody. What's going to make this the best possible campaign for the client. What's going to make it profitable for the client because that's what will make it profitable for the company. And that's what will make it profitable for me as an individual team member. Right. Mm. And then I'm assuming just because of how you were describing that, most projects, unless someone was willing to just pay a, a very large sum with no uh, back end um, like kicker for you guys, if I'm describing that right, I'm assuming that generally you have your fees and then there's an additional, you know, if we meet these targets, then there's a payout of this percent for each item sold or something like that. Yeah, yeah, there's, you know, there's various ways to, to work through that. Uh, but generally speaking, yes, we do like to have, um, you know, performance-based compensation built into it. Once again, it's all about the alignment. Nice. Yeah, I think that makes total sense just from the, uh, in fact, if, as a business owner, I feel like I'm always more, uh, when you can get on that, those terms, then uh, it's actually, you're at the, your client is now doing the same thing for you that you're doing for your employees, which is... Um, like you're saying, align, get on the same page so that if we win, you also win. And every, you know, everybody is doing better because we're all working as hard to, to be the best possible. I like that. So the other thing that I'm really interested in is VidAngel that you were a co-founder on. Is that still, um, up and running and that is a product that people can purchase? Absolutely. Yeah. So, and the, tell me, tell me a little bit about that. Sure. So when we did the Poopery campaign, there was uh, four of us. There was Neil, Daniel, Jeff. The, you know, they're three of the of the Harmon brothers, and then there was myself. So we, we were the group of we were kind of the core team behind Poopery. And Poopery was a six month contract. And when that contract ended, um, we were um, we were kind of actively searching for what was next. What what would be the next thing? And um, Neil, um, I, I think it was a combination of um, Neil and Jeff kind of came up with the idea for um, a, a filtering tool for, for YouTube because we were spending enormous amounts of time on, on YouTube, right? It was like the world that, that we were living in, um, doing our, yeah. our advertising campaigns and everything. And... Um, they were kind of thinking in terms of like, man, there's so much value here and there's so much good that this can bring to the world. But yet when they were thinking about it in terms of, um, you know, having their kids be on YouTube, there was a lot that was kind of scary about that because there's just so much, um, 
so much stuff on YouTube that a parent would be nervous to, you know, to have their kids exposed to. Just give them free yeah. reign. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and so the, um, they had kind of this idea for a, a filtering tool that would allow the crowd to go through any YouTube video and kind of tag it and say they would identify, okay, here's, you know, a, here's a swear word or here's an act of violence of some type or... Um, or, you know, here is um, sex or nudity or whatever the case may be. So that as people use um, YouTube, they would have the ability to, um, uh, to kind of turn off and on filters as they saw fit. You know, if there was a particular type of content mm. that, they, that they didn't want, then they could turn on the filter for, for that type of content. Um, right, right. So Neil um, went... And, and basically coded up a prototype for it. And um, that became kind of the genesis of, of VidAngel. And then it turned out there was actually a much bigger market for it for TV and movies um, than, there was, um, than there was for YouTube. And so that ended up being um, where the technology got, uh, got applied to. But now it, it, it's, it's a great tool for... You know, you can imagine, um, you know, I've got four of my own kids. My oldest is 10. And um, and I think it's fantastic for us in my house to be able to turn on a filter and say, you know, hey, I, I love for my kids to be able to watch this movie. But, man, there's this one scene um, that just makes me really uncomfortable to have them see it. Um, and so mm. it, it gives us the flexibility to... Um, to kind of control what what and how we watch in our own home it's it's pretty nice that's awesome so basically um the what it allow you like i have we don't have cable anymore so we do everything through amazon netflix um hulu and we can essentially just purchase this does it like install onto the amazon fire device or the apple tv device how exactly does that work? Yeah, so um, it, like you can do it on a. It doesn't have to be through a computer, is the, what I, I guess. The, what I'm that's asking. right. That's right. It's it's available on all sorts of streaming devices. At my house, I use it on um, on my Roku TV, and and it, it's basically a service on top of Netflix or Amazon. So you know, I subscribe to Netflix, and that gives me access to you know to all sorts of different shows and movies and everything. Um, and then I can watch those via the VidAngel app with the filters applied. Uh, okay. So, and is this, because I first heard of either VidAngel or something that was close to this, like, I don't know, it was a couple years ago, and the person was telling me that they were all disappointed because they had this wonderful app that they were using to watch movies with their kids, and then it had just been like, taken away or there was a lawsuit happening because uh companies were basically saying they're changing our original like the production companies were saying they're changing the movie and then profiting off of it or something like that is this are you guys the same company or is there another company that was doing it that didn't work out those details with those production companies to you know figure all that out yeah so um early in um, in VidAngel's history, um, the you know, despite seeking you know extensive um, 
legal opinions and despite you know reaching out to all the various different studios and everything for cooperation um vidangel did end up getting sued by um by disney and a handful of other studios um and and in fact that um that lawsuit um as far as i know is is still happening to this day and so keep in mind as i'm talking you through this i haven't been um i haven't been involved in in vidangel now for um for a few years since um in fact since long before that um before that lawsuit mm. happened um because basically the four of us um you know we, we founded vidangel together um but then daniel and i um made a pivot where we went and started focusing on building the agency while neil and jeff stayed focused on building vidangel um so oh, okay. so vidangel is still you know alive and well and it's it's going strong but that effort is all being led by uh by jeff and neil um and so th- that's why I'm frankly kind of unqualified to even, um, you know, dive into the details around, um, around what's happening there. Um, but Daniel and I, um, made that pivot to, to focus full time on building Harmon brothers as an agency. Um, that was in, uh, that was in early 2015 and, and, you know, the, the first campaign or the first big campaign that we did after that pivot was squatty potty. And, and then that kind of opened up the floodgates for us. And we ended up having, um, purple and chat books and, and fiber fix and, you know, more recently cub coats and Lumi and, uh, and several others along the way. That's awesome. Yeah. So, um, just to to wrap up the topic of VidAngel, uh, basically the, at least my hope, because I understand the. Obviously, who knows what's going to end up ultimately happening. It makes a lot of sense to me as a parent that I I truly hope something like this ends up like having a, a you know being around forever. If if unless the the Netflixes and Disney's of the world end up doing this themselves, because um, it just seems like a very useful tool for parents to. Um, enjoy some of the movies and stuff that we want to watch with our families, but, you know, avoid all the, um, whatever it is, the swearing, the sexuality or whatever is in that, that our kids aren't ready for, you know, especially when you have family of a range of kids from potentially, you know, five years old to, uh, 18 (laughs) and you're going to have family movie night. Like, are you just always going to watch, uh, the Fox and the Hound or something, you know? Right. Um, so anyways, I, I like the idea behind it and I hope that it, they end up working something out. Yeah. Yeah. You, you and me both along with, you know, hundreds of other hundreds of thousands of other people across the, uh, the country, you know, we're all, we're all, you know, keeping our fingers crossed that, um, you know, that, that they're able to, um, you know, to come out with a resolution that allows the, um, the service to continue because it's a phenomenal service and particularly for families. So the thing that I think is super interesting about businesses and startups in general is there's this period of time where you're, um, you're, you're working super hard to get something off the ground. Maybe you have some success, like you mentioned with, uh, or the Harmon brothers had with Aura Brush and then you, get together, you are successful with poopery, but you're still kind of like, you haven't figured out the model right. or the, 
the uh, you know how do we continue to have clients coming to us and it's sort of the prospecting side that has to be happening continuously while you're creating and doing analytics and pushing projects through and just developing that pipeline so I'm imagining initially those first few clients were probably found through uh, what's the way unusual methods as as far as how you how people find you now since you have a name. Um, do you have any interesting stories or just kind of stressful scenarios, um, from the early days of trying to come across or like even squatty potty, how did you find them or did they find you? Um, yeah, just kind of making sure that you had the next client back then. Yeah, it's, um, you know, we did the poopery campaign in 2013 and then basically 2014 was a hundred percent focused on on VidAngel. And then it was in early 2015 when, when Daniel and I made the pivot to go back and do kind of agency type work. And when we first made that pivot and we kind of started pounding the pavement, so to speak, to, um, you know, to go find some, you know, find some clients, we started going around and, and telling people that, hey, you know, we're the ones who made Poopery and we're tr- kind of trying to tout that. Um, but to our surprise, during that year that we had been focused on, on VidAngel, there were several other companies who had kind of seized the opportunity to like fill what they, I guess, saw as a, a, as a vacuum of credit around the Poopery campaign. And, and little did we know, but uh. there, was a, there was three or four other companies who were all claiming um, that they had done Poopery. And, and so as we started pounding the pavement and meanwhile, you guys were over on the other side uh, of the world talking about something that had nothing to do with marketing or advertising. That's right. (laughs) Um, And so we had several kind of awkward conversations with potential clients where we said, Oh yeah, you know, we're, we're the ones who did poopery. And, and I remember one in particular said, everybody claims that who really did it. And, um, Ah. and so we, um, we were kind of facing that initially. Um, but Squatty Potty in particular, when they saw the Poopery campaign, um, Bobby, their CEO, his reaction was one of, he was actually pissed off that he didn't find us first because he watched the campaign and he said, that should have been us. Um, and so he actually sought us out. And, um, and initially, we didn't want the campaign because we were like, man, you know, talking about poo stink is really hard in and of itself. But then when you try to talk about the biomechanics of how it actually happens, that's like a hundred times more disgusting. And, um, and so initially we weren't interested. Um, but as we were kind of like chewing on the idea, I think it was Jeff, if I remember correctly, he was walking to the office one morning and he had kind of this epiphany of, you know, what's the exact opposite of ice cream or sorry, what's the exact opposite of poop? And he's like, oh, it's ice cream, you know, it's, it's delicious. And, <laughs> and so then the question became, you know, well, what animal does it come from? And, um, and of course, the natural. Naturally, a yeah, unicorn. It had, yeah, had to be a unicorn. And once those pieces kind of fell into place, then we were like, you know what, guys, we could do this. We could pull this off. And so we took that back to, to Squatty Potty, um, and then initially they that made them nervous. They're like, "What a pooping unicorn!" And um, and so then they struggled <laughs> with the idea for a while. 
and and finally they kind of got comfortable with it and came back and and the rest is history that's awesome so what out of poopery and squatty potty which one has been more successful um boy they were both they were both wildly successful um uh, I think in terms of like total views and, and, and press pickup and kind of like notoriety and everything, I'd probably have to say that, um, that squatty potty kind of ended up outdoing poopery, even though they were both wildly successful. Um, but the squatty potty ad ended up winning a couple of webbies and it got, um, it, you know, covered by ad age and ad week and, and all the, you know, all the major press outlets. And, um, I'm not sure to this day that we've ever had a campaign, um, that's even come close to squatty potty in the total number of shares. I mean, it was just wildly successful. I think boing boing called it the, the greatest viral ad in the history of the internet or something like that. Hmm. Yeah, no, I was the ad before or after the Shark Tank appearance. It was after. Yeah, they had they had previously oh, okay. appeared on Shark Tank and that kind of was a pretty good launching pad for them. Um, but it compared to what happened with the the unicorn ad, it was um it was pretty small by comparison. And who was the uh did they end up getting an investor from Shark Tank? Uh, yes, yes, they did. I think, um, and so him, he was, was he or she, whoever that was involved in the development of the ad or aware of it, I guess. Um, no, actually <laughs> they weren't, they, they heard about the concept early on and hated it. Um, and, and said <laughs> no to it. And so Bobby, the CEO actually kind of ended up having to go behind all the investors backs, um, to green light um. the campaign which we actually didn't know about until just a couple of days before launch. He told us, he was like, guys, this better work because if it doesn't work, I'm screwed. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Um, but then of course, you know, he, he ended up looking like a genius after the fact. Um, but he, he really had to stick his neck out on the line for that to, to happen. So I've, I've always, um, you know, I've always admired Bobby for, you know, being visionary enough to, to take that kind of risk. That's awesome. And probably also admired that he didn't put that pressure on you guys until two days before launch. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I did appreciate that. Cause I remember, more stressful. <laughs> I remember two days before launch going, Oh my gosh, Bobby, why did you tell me that? <laughs> <laughs> right. Right. Um, so I saw a LinkedIn post that you made, uh, after the Gillette ad, I thought that was pretty interesting. And you, one of the things you dove into was, kind of how you guys pick uh, your clients and projects that come to you. Obviously now being a little bit more, more mature business, you have, I'm sure, the phone ringing more than it was, uh, if it was ringing at all in those early days. And you're in a place of deciding, you know, is this something that we believe in um, and whatnot? How Can you kind of walk me through how you guys... Um, develop the compass of what is okay and not okay and what you guys are aligned with and whatnot when deciding to work with a client? The number one thing for us is passion. And here, here's how we think about it. Like if there's a product or service that we get passionate about, and when I say passion, I'm talking like to the point 
of we're telling friends and family about it voluntarily, you know, not because it's a, a client, but because we're just passionate about what that product or service is. When we can find something like that, then the passion that, that we feel for it just comes out in, in the advertising and it, 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 it makes it makes the final product just that much more compelling and, and that, that much stronger. And when I say the final product, I'm talking about the, the advertising campaign, right? And mm. so it's a pretty simple rule, but it basically says if we're passionate enough to use and love and talk about the product, then we'll be successful at, at marketing it. And so when products come along that we don't use or we don't love, then those are the ones that that we have to take a pass on and you know we're in the fortunate position that you know we get roughly uh, it's about 100 leads per month and you know we can you know we we can't quite take 1% of 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 all those leads coming in um and so it allows us to to be really discerning and and really choosy about who we partner with. And that's part of why we've been able to, you know, to keep up such a great track record. Um, you know, th that said, we, we've worried about how can we take care of all those other people who are looking for our services and looking for our, our help, but we're not able to provide it to them. Um, and so, you know, more recently we, we've, you know, come up with some other ways to help those leads who we can't create a campaign for. So one of which is Harmon Brothers University, where we actually teach other people and other companies how to do what we do so that, um, oh. so that even though we can't service everyone, we can still give people the guidance and the tools and the direction to be able to do it themselves. Um, that's awesome. So. The thing that's crazy to me is that so now you're saying you get you can't even work with 1% of the leads that are coming to you. And that, I would say, is a direct result of taking a lot of time and attention to detail in the early projects that you guys did and just making sure that they were absolutely great um, in every way. But at the same time, I also feel like, and you kind of hit, you alluded to one fear or thing that concerns you is the people you can't serve. So you now come up with a solution for that. But I'm curious, how do you, can you think of anything that early on was like consuming that, like when your mind would go to those darker places of, of anxiety uh, and how that's evolved? Yeah. Yeah. I think early on, we probably were a little too fearful of being ripped off. Um, I imagine that experience early on of, you know, having, you know, credit for the poopery campaign kind of hijacked by, uh, by several other companies. It kind of put us on high alert a little bit, probably too much so. And so I think during our early years, we were kind of, I would say, overly protective about, you know, what we do and how we do it and, you know, kind of trying to, to protect the, the secret sauce. Um, but eventually, you know, over time, our perspective kind of changed a little bit and, and we kind of reminded ourselves of, you know, our fundamental belief that, um, it, you know, we don't need to have a zero sum mentality and we can actually be very 
um, open and transparent with how we do what we do. And not only does that, um, um, it attracts a lot of talent to us um, because we're, you know, we're openly sharing with, with the community how we do what we do. And, and then we see the people who take those principles and those lessons and apply them. And, and it helps us find the, the amazingly talented people. And so it's allowed us to grow our team with just incredibly talented and incredibly passionate people who just align with us so well. And they, they, they keep us kind of at the top of our game. And then I would also say that it challenges our team knowing that, you know, we're just being transparent and open with, you know, all of our quote unquote trade secrets. And so the, the burden is on us to, to innovate and figure out what's next. And, and so that's really fostered a great culture of, uh, of testing and innovation and experimentation. And, you know, we have a weekly meeting that we call our hypothesis testing lab. And, and that's where, you know, we show up at the hypothesis testing lab and we brainstorm various hypotheses that we want to test. And then, um, and then we have a team that structures those tests and then actually implements the test so that then we can um, take those results back to, back to that lab and, and explore the results. And so that the findings that are happening there um, end up getting assimilated across the whole entire organization. And so that the creative team are, are taking those learnings and applying it to their creative work um, you know, the, the, I, we call it the funnel team, but you know, they're the data people, the ad buyers, um, the, the optimization folks, they're taking all of those learnings and applying them to what, to what we're doing. And so, um, I, I think that shift in mentality has actually helped us make more progress, um, as opposed to, um, uh, I guess I would sum it up as, Worrying about giving away the secret sauce and holding others back um, did less to advance us than than just opening up, giving it away, and then pushing ourselves to to innovate and stay out in front. To come up with new secret sauces. <laughs> that's right. That's right. No, I like that because, and that's something I'm sure you've heard of Gary Vaynerchuk. Yep, yep. I have a pair of his shoes. <laughs> oh, nice. Uh, I, I just love that he's kind of been the biggest advocate of exactly what you guys are doing, which is because of YouTube uh, and the internet in general, there are no trade secrets anymore. Like you, you might have a barbecue stand and you think that you have the one, one of a kind sauce that no one else has or whatever, but it's like at the end of the day, if you aren't going to go tell people exactly how you do what you do, somebody else is going to do that because it's so cheap and easy to do um, that basically there's no reason to not say like, here's literally everything that I can possibly give you. And it's so counterintuitive because when you do that, there's even more people that say, I want you to work for me or I want to hire you guys because the context of all the rules and the strategies and the processes is what's valuable, not necessarily the idea. Being able right. to extrapolate your process or to use the processes that you guys have identified in a given scenario is where the real, real value is. And that's something that you actually get better at when you start talking about it in the way that you guys are. That's exactly right. 
Well, this is more like uh, this is the Chris Kiefer personal like uh, psychologist se uh, session. My next question, but okay. something that I struggle with is being a hundred percent me. Like, and I, I, one of the things that I am trying to figure out, it's not. I would say that it's not so much that I am pretending to be somebody else, but that it's I'm I'm afraid to be fully transparent about all my beliefs, opinions, you know, ideas and whatnot, because the fear of, you know, people not liking who I truly am, if that makes sense. And I feel like it always, for me, comes back to like religious and political and things like that, which, um, you know, you have to be careful about how you talk and present that side of you regardless, but it's something that I'm always hesitant in, um, in being transparent about, if that makes sense, especially, and in, in particular on social media or, right. and to be honest, this podcast is like my, uh, attempt to be a little bit more vulnerable and open with, um, what I actually think about on a regular basis and just wanting to have more meaningful conversations with people that I feel like are doing great work. But do you have any insecurities or things that you also are kind of working through, or maybe there were some big things that you used to care a lot about that now you care less about. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. That, that's a really interesting question because I think we all kind of like to wake up in the morning and say, you know, Hey, I want to make the world a better place. Or, you know, I think many of us kind of start our careers out with, you know, aspirations of, I want to do something big. I want to do something impactful. I want to, you know, I'll go back to, I want to make the world a better place. I feel like that's something that, that we kind of often talk about. Um, and when you actually come face to face with opportunities to do that, many times they come at, um, I, I guess I would describe as, they feel like high risk situations, high risk to your reputation, you know, high risk to, to your company's brand, that sort of thing. So for example, we did a campaign for an organization called Save the Storks. And what Save the Storks does is they make these mobile ultrasound buses that, um, that, have an they have an ultrasound unit on the bus and then they offer free ultrasounds to women who are in crisis pregnancies mm. and in giving these women ultrasounds they can also um, tell them about all sorts of other resources that are available to these women who who are in these crisis pregnancies um, and in doing so um, these women who get these ultrasounds um, who are normally at high risk for abortions um, end up choosing abortions at a much, much lower rate. Um, and so it's this really fascinating service that kind of unites both the pro-choice and the pro-life side, because of course I'm pro-choice. Um, you know, that, that's a group that is looking for, you know, women who are in these crisis pregnancies and these hard situations to have more choices and more available options for them to, you know, to figure out the best scenario for, for their needs. And then of course the pro-life, you know, side of the argument is looking for, um, uh, you know, for a reduction in, um, in, in abortions. Right. And, 
Um, and so Save the Storks came to us for help in telling this, this story and getting this message out there. And it was interesting because we felt passionately aligned with, with what they're doing. And we were so moved by, by it and the impact that they're having on both sides of the argument. They're, they're helping women. They're, um, they're, they're helping babies. They're connecting people to a, a adoption services. They're connecting people to um, you know, support in terms of uh, counseling, uh, food, diapers, milk, formula, you know, all these different needs that, um, uh, you, you know, that a, um, a woman who's facing these hard situations needs that, that, that kind of support. And, and so even though we're feeling passionately aligned with, with what they're doing and we're super excited about it, the, the thought of doing a campaign for them was honestly very scary. You know, it was like, holy smokes, this is a very polarizing subject. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's a subject that is charged with enormous amounts of of, of hate and, um, and uh, uh, criticism and politics, and, and there's so much baggage with it, that that was just a scary, scary thing for us to take on. And, um, it, you know, we, we gave it deep consideration, and ultimately we decided to take the risk and take on the project. And frankly, it was one of the hardest projects that we've ever done before. It, you know, it, it taxed us immensely because it was so hard to, to figure out how to present that, th- that message in a... Like attractive um, light from as many sides as possible. Yeah, yeah. And um, in the end, it, it turned out phenomenal. You know, it, the, we put the campaign out and it's been viewed millions and millions of times and it's raised millions of dollars for the organization. And, and frankly, it, it has um, it received almost no, um, no hate um, mm. which, you know, was kind of a pleasant surprise because we were all bracing for the worst on, right, right. Uh, on that one. Um, so we're, you know, we're trying to, to stay true to our, our desires to find ways to make the be- world a better place. And sometimes, um, you know, sometimes those come at high risk. In fact, we're, we're working on a campaign right now, um, that is another really high risk campaign. It's a campaign designed to, uh, to help people who are trying to overcome from pornography addiction. Um, uh-huh. and, and once again, it's a very, very charged and very polarizing subject. And we're trying to approach it in a way that makes it safe. Um, um, we want to, we want to create safety around the subject so that people can, um, can have a way to approach it without feeling like, um, uh, like they're being polarizing or, or, mm. um, or uh, yeah. And I'm curious with both of those examples, those are two very, very good examples, uh, to bring up about this. Do you guys incorporate humor? Cause I haven't seen the save the storks video. I'm going to have to look that up and I'll include that in the show notes for anyone that's listening. Um, but do you guys include humor in those? Is that, I feel like humor is kind of one of your signature pieces, um, or have you guys, and are those two examples of projects where you took a very serious angle or do you ever do that? So save the storks didn't have much humor in it. Um, it, it's more of kind of a mini documentary style. It ended up being a 12 minute mini documentary. So it's a little bit different than our other ads, um, in mm-hmm. that it's, it's less of a pitch 
um, you know, less pitch man, more just kind of documentary style um, people talking about, um, you know, what the service is and what it means to them. And, um, and it just ended up really, really resonating with millions of people. And, and so it got shared all over the place and, and, it, uh, you know, it did a great job raising money for the organization. And so now they're able to, uh, to roll out more of those vans and provide those services for more people across the country. Hmm, that's awesome. Um, the, the, the pornography one that we're working on, um, it will involve more humor, um, than, than Save the Storks did, but it won't be strictly humor. It, you know, it will also have some more, um, um, you know, there's some moments in it that, um, that lean more towards the heartfelt side and, and they mm. kind of pull away from just, you know, the, the, just the light laughing moments a little bit. Right, right. <clears throat> That's awesome. No, I think those are two really cool causes you guys have done. Uh, the next episode that I'm doing is actually with uh, Christopher West. I don't know if you've heard of him. He's the leading theologian. Um, I guess he, he's a theologian, but also just kind of an expert on this topic called theology of the body. But he just has a way of talking about these topics that are very difficult for, I would say, for me and the average person to get into conversation about. And right. he just makes them very relatable, you know, just like, um, and presents it from a very, um, uh, like, I guess I don't know how, what else to describe it other than like a beautiful perspective that you can't really fight or like get mad at beauty, you know, cause there's, there's no attacking. Um, but there, I, the reason I thought of that is because, um, the, the theology of the body content definitely affects uh, the whole pornified and just contraceptive culture and everything that's happening. Um, and it's just a, I think that's a huge, uh, issue that is kind of unfortunately becoming more and more common and just accepted in the workplace and everything. Um, and it's just kind of assumed that, uh, porn is something that is now like, uh, it's just like something that guys and women now also, do and that's I there's just a lot of negative effects that that's having so it's awesome to hear that you guys are uh getting involved in that I'm curious to see when is that uh campaign supposed to be wrapping up uh that one will be out mid-April um yeah yeah I think second week of April that that one's due out and it's one that um (laughs) quite frankly it's turning out to be even more challenging than than save the storks was um, mm. because there's just so much um, so much baggage around the subject, both in terms of you know kind of um, opposing views on the subject as well as um, you know generally people who who deal with it have uh, they feel an enormous amount of shame and kind of social stigma around it, and it's an embarrassing subject to um, to talk about address. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so, you know, in the same way that, that we made it safe to talk about poop, um, and, and, and you know, <laughs> bathroom posture where we're hoping that we can take a, a awkward and, you know, I would even dare say, you know, kind of a dangerous subject. And, mm. and we're really hoping to make it safe because we feel like, 
um, you know, society would benefit so much by people just oh, yeah. being able to to talk openly about it um, so that, um, you know, people who are dealing with it can can find help without having to feel like um, like outcasts. Right, right. Absolutely. That's awesome. So the final question uh, that I have is on book recommendations. And I know that you guys uh, did have a and just released a book uh, a couple months ago or maybe a month ago called From Poop to Gold. So why don't you tell us about that book? So we recently released our book Poop, From Poop to Gold. And in it, we kind of focus on the key underlying principles that we believe are absolutely core to who we are and how we do what we do and why we've been successful at it. And it's a little bit different than, you know, a, a more traditional marketing book would kind of take more of approach of almost spelling out a recipe of, hey, if you do A, B, C, and D, then, then you'll see these results. And, and we took a little bit different approach where, where we tried to dig a little bit deeper and, and do more of an exploration of the underlying principles rather than just, you know, the tactics that, that, that we do. And, and so, for example, you know, some of the underlying principles are um, all about the creative partnerships that, that we establish with our clients and how we how we look at those, how we vet those, um, what are the criteria through which we, we look at them. Um, it's our creative processes or what are these underlying principles that, um, that guide us as we go through you know, our, our creative processes. Um, you know, we, we, we dive into how we compensate our, our team. Um, and so it's, it, it's a little bit different approach to, to a marketing book, but um, so far, our readers are, are giving us really, really positive feedback on it because it's, it's a really fresh take that, that kind of helps you think a little bit deeper than just the tactics. That's awesome. Yeah, I, um, one of the things that my weakness as an individual is uh, how bad of a reader I am. But I listen to audiobooks at superhuman speed. <laughs> got it. So got it. I, I never... I'm actually trying to read a book, just a physical book right now. And I say trying because it's just like, I don't know, it's my, if it's an, the engineer side of me or maybe some ADD or what, but um, it is so hard for me to focus when I'm reading with my eyes. But when I listen to books, um, I can just, I like soak it up and I'm just very auditory in that sense. So I actually, hey, whatever about, works, whatever works. Exactly. About five minutes ago, I did purchase the audio book from poop to gold. So that's going to be one of my next books on audible. So I'm excited to listen to that. Good. Let, let, let me know your thoughts on it when you get through it. I will. So book recommendations in general, what are, it doesn't necessarily need to be business related, but I give every guest the opportunity to suggest, you know, one, two, three books that you really find um, valuable or that you've really enjoyed. You know, thinking about business books, you know, Simon Sinek's Start With Why has, has had a major impact on us um, and helped us get a lot of clarity around what our why is. Um, we went from kind of being an organization that just makes cool campaigns to now we're an organization that understands that we exist to share better stories and and that's given us deep meaning. We know we can share better stories through ads 
we can share better stories through education. And, you know, we even have aspirations of um, getting into original content, you know, TV and, and movies and that type of stuff um, so that we can have opportunities to share better stories through, through those means as well. Um, and so, you know, if I had to identify um, a book that's had a major, major impact on us, I think that would definitely be, you know, top five. It's, it's up there. Um, next question is your favorite movie of all time. Uh, so I, I'm always lousy at the favorite questions. It's so hard for me to choose a favorite. <laughs> I usually kind of think in terms of, oh, uh, you know, that's probably top five or that's probably top 10. Um, so I, I would say, so you give me one of your top five. Okay. I, I think I would say Christopher Nolan's, uh, dark Knight. Um, mm. that's, that's gotta be up there in my top five. Um, I think his, um, it, 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 it's interesting because he, in that movie, like he does such a deep dive into both Batman and Joker's characters mm. of the motives that, that drive them. You know, it, it's not just the, um, um, it's not just the, what are these characters doing? It's the, why are they, are they doing it? And, um, and he does such a good job of, of intermixing, um, kind of those deep psychological um, themes into a very fun thriller action um, um, movie. So yeah, that, that one's definitely top five for me. That's awesome. One of the things that I, you actually might like this as a statistician, and I'm curious, <clears throat> you'll have to test this out and tell me if it works, but um, I'm a big IMDB ratings person. And what I mean is like I, before I watch any recommended movie from someone, I'll go look up the score on IMDb uh -huh. to see if it's worth my time. And, uh, the dark Knight, I don't know if you've ever looked at their top 250 happens to be top three movies of all time based on user reviews. It's got a 9.0 out of 10. I have seen it. It's a fantastic movie. So your top, you, you are not only is it in your top five, but it's in the world's top five. <laughs> but my, my little uh, equation that I've come up with, because I ask everybody, I love movies, but my theory or my opinion is there's, there's so many movies to watch that you have to have some way of just kind of quickly being like, eh, I'm not, it's not worth my time because there's so many other things that you could be watching that is, is worth your time. So right, my right. cutoff is a 7.3. And what that means is had you suggested a movie that I hadn't heard of that was below a 7.3, I would then present you with the opportunity to say, no, I want to use my mulligan, Chris. I think you should watch <laughs> it. I think it's, it's, it is worth your time. And then I will go watch it if it's, uh, if it's below it, but you say, you, you know, trust me. But if I don't like it, then you never you don't get your mulligan back, and I never take another recommendation from you again. <laughs> I like it. I like it. I, I appreciate that you have a system in place. I, yeah. I ought to follow suit. Yeah. So, anyways, um, if it's above a seven point three, at least from my experience, there's like a ninety nine percent chance that you're going to say, yeah, you know, it was a good movie. Doesn't mean doesn't guarantee you're going to like it, but it at least weeds out a lot of movies that you get done watching, and you're like what did I just do for the last two hours? You know? Right. <laughs> so, right. Yep, we've all been there. Mm -hmm. 
Uh, well, anyways, I really appreciate uh, your time, Benton. This has been super, super uh, just enlightening and just good conversation. If someone has a question or wants to say thanks or reach out to you, what is your preferred method of contact for them? Um, I'd say go um, send me an email, Benton at HarmanBrothers.com. But I say that with the caveat that I am uh, notoriously slow with with email. So don't don't expect a a quick response, but I'm happy to have you reach out. Awesome. And are you on social media at all? Yes. Um, Facebook and LinkedIn are kind of my, uh, my main channels. Um, I just, um, I just put out my first tweet in many, many years. <laughs> I'm, <laughs> I'm experimenting with, uh, with getting on the bandwagon there, but I, I wouldn't say I'm reliable there. So. Awesome. Okay. Uh, so fa Facebook or LinkedIn are definitely better platforms to reach me. Sweet. Well, uh, again, thank you so much for your time and just being generous with interview or being interviewed. And uh, yeah, I'll share this with you and we'll be in touch. Thanks, Chris. It's a pleasure. Appreciate you having me on. Thank you everyone for listening. As you know, you can find me on Instagram. You can also visit my website, chriskiefer.net to see more of the blogs, podcasts, other articles that I write. And feel free to reach out if you have an idea for an upcoming episode uh, or just want to give some feedback on something that you maybe have liked or not liked. I'm always open to uh, constructive or destructive criticism. So thank you again for listening and we'll see you next time. You're listening to the Pursuit of Purpose podcast. Wisdom, stories, and advice from successful entrepreneurs and inspirational people.